You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, recording of episode 110 was just briefly delayed a few minutes so I could consume the Laffy Taffy that you brought to my house. You're welcome. Uh, it was banana-flavored. Of course. To which I uh, responded, no man, nobody likes banana-flavored candy. Not true. And you said you do like banana-flavored candy. I love some banana-flavored candy. I think that's gross, man. I've got to be honest with you. You know what? I'm just going to stop bringing you anything because you're you're, you're never grateful. You're just going to be an asshole about it. So, you know what? Enjoy this candy, Chad Dundas, because it's the last candy you'll ever get from this guy. Harkens back to the time I brought those cookies over to your house for that UFC pay-per-view and you just wouldn't stop mocking me for it. Oh, you mean those vegan cookies that tasted like grass clippings? Listen to this motherfucker making fun of my vegan cookies when he just brought banana-flavored candy over to my house. At least it has, like, real gross chemicals the way candy should. I didn't try to bring you some vegan candy from the good food store. Well, if it was banana-flavored, I wouldn't like it either way. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, look... I'm going to be honest. If you're a tattoo-covered, tough-as-shit featherweight with the adorable nickname of a baby animal, I'm pretty much going to be into anything you do. And in round number two, we don't know who's going to win in Chris Weidman versus Lyoto Machida, but it's a good bet at least one of these guys is going to show up to UFC 175 sporting his new middleweight, too-sexy-to-shave-more-than-once-every-two-weeks look. And frankly, that's pretty exciting. And in round number three, Ronda Rousey is a 20-to-1 favorite over Alexis Davis. What What? the fuck, man? Wasn't there a coffee barista she could fight or something? All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Well, Ben, it's a big week this week in the mixed martial arts world. You knew it would be. Uh, So uh, mostly topical listener mails this week. Not, not we were long forced philosophical into, digressions this yeah, time. Yeah, we were forced to be topical because there's just so much going on. The first uh, piece of listener mail comes to us from Mike Morgan. He writes, News broke that Chael Sonnen failed his second drug test during the fight night prelims. This was a huge story for the MMA world, and yet the Fox Sports 1 crew chose not to mention it. I don't really have a question, but I just wanted to hear you guys discuss this shit. Okay. I, I like that's right up our alley there. That was weird. Right? Because you're sitting there and you're watching it, especially because they had a bunch of studio time to kill because a couple of fights ended early. Uh, they, you know, so they're just going to go through their predictions for the main card and have Daniel Cormier and Dominic Cruz, uh, talk in depth breakdowns about every fight coming up. And you know that, like, they're struggling to fill that time. And you also know that this big, huge story is hanging out there that they probably don't want to touch. And so you're waiting to see if they'll do it, and yet you kind of know they won't, and yet it's still disappointing when they don't even mention it. Yeah, disappointing, but not necessarily unexpected. I mean, we've had no. a we have a long history with the UFC, uh, sort of ignoring, like in you know inconvenient truths. I guess you would say during their broadcast, even as small a thing as like you know not mentioning a guy's losses during a pre-fight hype package for him, which actually they've started doing that a little bit more, uh, which I'm proud of them for, for their honesty. I will tell you that the uh, 
to me, the most ironic part of the way that I uh, experienced this situation was that I didn't jump on Twitter at the beginning of, of Fight Night 44. I was just watching it on TV, so I didn't know. I was a little bit late to the party in finding out that Chael Sonnen had uh, failed this second drug test. So I was as I was watching the uh, the, the Fight Night 44 uh, television hype, I was kind of surprised. It seemed like they were mentioning stuff that they don't normally mention on the broadcast. They were talking about Kelvin Gastelum missing weight and how that right. had been kind of a problem for him. I can't remember. They talked about a other another couple of things where I was like, huh, and they're actually talking about this kind of negative stuff. And I was like, you know what? I'm proud of them. I'm proud of the, about, of the Fox Sports broadcast for doing this. Maybe Fox is legitimizing things a little bit here. And then as soon as I log on Twitter, I find out, oh, no, they're just <laughs> ignoring the biggest story of the day. Now, in their defense, let's say that on Fox Sports Live after the event, they did at least read his statement. Okay, and that's the at least that you threw in there. That that deserves to be kind of underlined because that was like the least they could do. And they put it at the very end of their segment. So it's like midnight in the one true time zone. Uh, and it's like after they've done breakdowns of like prelim fights and talking about Tough 19, which even Dana White has stopped caring about. And finally at the end, it says like Chael responds and they just basically read his statement from the MMA fighting. Thing. I mean, at least they did touch on it. I kind of wondered when they didn't uh, mention it at all during the the actual show right before the, the main card started, how much of that was that, you know, you got Karen Bryant sitting there with Cormier and Dominic Cruz and... You might not, what are you supposed to do? They have like Karen Bryant say, okay, breaking news, this just happened, and then throw it to the two fighters for like immediate analysis. That, you know, I guess you kind of got to give them a little bit of a break because those dudes are not really professional broadcasters. So maybe the producers think like they're not ready for this. They're not, they're not used to thinking on their feet with a delicate situation like that. But also, since Chael Sonnen is himself a Fox Sports employee, that throws like an extra added little wrench in there where you're like, okay, so you're just, are you going to gloss over the, uh, the latest terrible thing that your employee did? Yeah, you're right that it would put those active fighters who are on the broadcast in a strange situation, uh, not only because they would be put in a position of having to react on the fly to news that Chael Sonnen had tested positive, but also like react, like you said, to the fact that a dude that they have to sit next to a bunch had tested positive. So, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say former Olympian Daniel Cormier, uh, probably not a performance enhancing drug user. And uh, God, just, just because of what I know about his personality, I bet he doesn't have a high opinion of performance enhancing drug users. It would be tough to kick it over to him knowing that like maybe two weeks from now, he's got to sit next to Chael Sonnen on a different FS1 broadcast and be like, so DC, you look good, by the way. Your pen, <laughs> your pen matches your tie and your pocket square, which was pretty unbelievable. Some pretty uh, Tony shit right there. But like, what do you think about this? Like, I don't know. That's, that would put him in a tough spot. It would. I mean, can we talk about Chael Sonnen for a second uh, about the actual, this actual news here? Yes. Um, because this, I think, you know, obviously, anytime you talk about this kind of stuff, you're going to hear a lot from the Chael Sonnen fans who are pretty ardent, uh, no matter what Chael Sonnen does, it seems. I mean, the same people who want to like just bury John Jones for uh, like an Instagram quip that they don't care for uh, seem like they'll defend Chael Sonnen no matter what. But this seems like the one where even if you're the biggest Chael Sonnen fanboy, don't you have to admit that he now seems like one of the most notorious liars and cheaters in maybe MMA history? 
Well, I think you just hit on a very interesting point there, and I know that you wrote about this on MMA Junkie. There's been a lot of talk about what's to become of Chael Sonnen now because, you know, the guy technically is retired, uh, so it's not like a suspension is going to hit him right where he lives or right. anything like that. Um, and, I, you know, I saw it bandied about on Twitter about whether or not he should go on in his role as an analyst on Fox Sports 1. And I think the thing that you just said uh, really – kind of points to the fact that maybe his position at Fox is sort of untenable now because, as you said, he could be one of the most notorious liars in the sport. And, like, if you're going to sit on a uh, a broadcast that purports to be a news broadcast as essentially a co-anchor, along with Kenny Florian, once a week on UFC Tonight, um, the there's only two things that you need to be able to do. The first thing you need to be able to do is talk, which obviously Chael Sonnen can do very well. The second thing that you need is that you you need to be credible. Yep. And right now, it doesn't seem like that guy has any credibility at all. I mean, it just seems like he could be lying about anything. Absolutely anything. And we just wouldn't know until he fails the drug test. Uh, and obviously, I don't know that any of us are tremendously surprised that any of these guys uh, with a long testosterone replacement hi- uh, therapy history would uh, later to be proved to be taking other performance-enhancing drugs. One of the big things here to me, and I think Dave Meltzer wrote about this on uh, MMAfighting.com, is just the mere fact that Sonnen tested positive for HGH and EPO, which were previously considered to be uh, PEDs that you had a really, really low chance of testing positive for because the the standard tests that they do for most athletic commissions just don't detect them. Right, and have been rumored for a long time to be widespread in MMA because of that, that, that feeling that you'll never get caught using them. Yeah, and so for him to test positive for uh, HGH and EPO is kind of a newsbreaker to me just because I think it means that the Nevada State Athletic Commission – now, this is just my inference. I, I haven't read about this, so maybe this is not right, but it it, it, it seems to indicate to me that – once the Nevada State Athletic Commission know, knew that he had tested positive for these other these other things, it retested him or sent a sample that it already had to this uh, WADA lab in Salt Lake City where they do more advanced testing, maybe, and that that's how they popped him for HGH and EPO. But uh, if you're if you're out there in, in fight land and you're taking those substances, thinking that you're free and clear right now, maybe this is a little bit of a of a scary wake up call. Some dudes are sweating this for sure after after this big news, but also I think like. This is such a, a big one, like you said, because it's it's uncommon to get caught for that stuff, but also because, you know, before when he could say, hey, yes, I was taking these technically banned substances, but I had to do something to safely transition off TRT. And it was it was bullshit, but it was kind of believable bullshit. You could be like, OK, there's a there's at least a case you could make there uh, where it doesn't seem like maybe you were knowingly trying to cheat before getting in a cage to hurt another human being, which just seems so wrong. Um, but with this, with HGH and EPO, you can't make that. You can't make that case at all, not even a little bit. And according to like everybody you talk to, like the doping experts and like the fighters, that combination is like the dream cocktail. Uh, if you were going to be able to take anything that you would want, you know, like the, the combination of what it does for like strength and recovery without bulking up too much to the point where it's going to make your weight cut difficult, but also improving your cardio. I mean, these are like, this is exactly what you would want to do if there were no rules. Uh, and he was doing it, you know, he's trying to get away with it and people acting like, well, who cares if a retired guy was using it, man, he got, he got busted for this stuff in a test that happened before he retired. He had to know that this was a chance that this was coming out. It's like, 
like, well, hey, I, I resigned before I could be impeached kind of thing. Like, I, that holds no water whatsoever. I mean, I know that the Chelsonen fanboys are going to cling to, like, whatever little piece of driftwood they could find in this wreckage. But, man, that one, that's just not going to hold up. If you're telling yourself that, if you, if you do whatever you need to do to keep your heroes intact, I guess, but at least privately admit that you're a bullshit person. Yeah, I don't see how you could really hold the guy as a hero at this point. Like, it it only makes matters worse for him that he just sat on television and cut that promo on Vanderlei Silva, where exactly. he talked about a cloud of suspicion and for performance-enhancing drugs. And imagine then, if Vanderlei Silva had gotten caught for this stuff, what the what that reaction would be. Imagine what Chael Sonnen would say about something like that. Well, I think that this probably puts him to bed, I would think, in terms of being a uh, a relevant... Uh, well, certainly, I don't think the guy will be coming back to fight, maybe, but uh, like in terms of being like a relevant newsmaker, I don't know what the UFC or Fox Sports will do with him. Certainly, it wouldn't surprise me to see them keep him on and just sort of like uh, put their head down and try to bull rush through all of this controversy. Uh, but also, like, uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of done with him now. Like this, it's hard to come back from from everything that we've seen from him, and this is just sort of like the fucking railroad tie in the in the coffin. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think that probably if I had to guess what they're gonna do is they'll probably have him lay low for a little while. Uh, not really saying maybe they'll issue him some kind of suspension from the Fox broadcast, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he does show up back there again. But I, I mean, I do think that, that this is an instance where if you're the UFC and Fox Sports, and we know that the UFC is calling the shots with who gets to be on Fox Sports, it's not like Fox Sports is thinking about hiring Tito or anything. You know, I, I think that this is a, the point where you do tell, start to tell us something about what you really think of, of drug cheats. Is it just an inconvenience for you that, it, you know, when something like this happens or, or are you actively trying to do something about this in the sport? And this will be a good opportunity for them to show us how they really feel. Second question this week comes from Mark O. He writes, since it's been established that the Lord was responsible for advising Nate Marquardt to move back to middleweight, who was responsible for advising James Tahuna? Beelzebub? Sir Nigel? The people need answers. Ooh, uh, wow. So this is one of the only questions we got this week about the Nate Marquardt James Tahuna main event that aired uh, really early in the morning on Fight Pass this past Saturday, really? uh, which either means that people thought we were going to do a round, a full round about it, or that most people just didn't care. Uh, but uh, now we know Nate Marquardt comes out uh, with his Evan Tanner beard. Um, ends up getting on top of James Tahuna, uh, looks good, punishes him a little bit on the ground, and then uh, arm bars him uh, for for the win. Uh, does this mean anything for for anybody moving forward? Except that Nate Marquardt gets to keep his. Job? I mean, I saw some people bandying about on the internet like Nate Marquardt is back at middleweight, and it's just kind of like I don't know, man. I wouldn't say he's back. He's he's still employed. I'll say that. Yeah, no, that's what it means. Is it's one of those negative stakes bouts where it means you haven't reached the end of the line just yet. Um, which is something, you know, and, and who knows how, how far back he can bounce. I mean, I think the problem with Marquardt has always been consistency, though. It's never that, like, you don't think Marquardt has any talent or that, you know, that he's not a good fighter. He is. And sometimes, like, in those rare flashes, like, against his against Tyron Woodley in that, uh, that strike force fight, sometimes he goes out there and he looks absolutely awesome. And you think, man, wow, what could this guy really do? And then another night, like, you know, the next uh, strike force fight where he showed up uh, and what was it against... 
Tarek Safadine uh, in the next one, you know, he just looked totally flat and you're, you're waiting for him to do something and show some urgency and there's just absolutely nothing there. So, I mean, I think his problem is stringing a few of those together and, you know, now I'll have to try and start to do it against guys who really matter. But, I mean, it means something. It's not all over for him yet. Yeah, and I think you're right. He's been revealed for a long time now as a consistent performer and a guy who, frankly, like before he came into the UFC, we may have uh, talked about this a little last week and, and written about it on the on the Breakfast of Champions last Friday. Uh, uh, he's remember before he came into the UFC when he'd be fight, been fighting in Pancrase and yeah. stuff like that. He was one of those dudes, kind of like Lyoto Machida, who we'll talk about later in the in the program, uh, who had this like kind of mystique about him because uh, a wide American audience hadn't really got to see him fight very much. But you just like read this stuff about him on message boards that he was awesome, and and then you know comes over to the UFC and I think the summer of 2005 and and has a lot of hype behind him. But in the years since, uh, like you said, has proven. To just be not only inconsistent, but a dude who kind of lets down in really big spots. Uh, as we wrote about in the in the Breakfast of Champions, he was the main event with uh, Ivan Salivary in that the first fight night event on Spike TV. And uh, as Jordan Breen reminded me this last week when I was on Press Row, uh, that fight was so bad that the UFC edited it out of the rebroadcast. Like they were embarrassed to show it. And then Ivan Salivary, a- poor ass Ivan Salivary, <laughs> who comes out on the wrong end of that one, gets cut and has to go beat Art Santor in the W. FA in order to even get back in the UFC. So Mark Ward had that weird performance. He had the terrible title defense or title shot against Anderson Silva. He let down in two title eliminators against Chael Sonnen and Yushin Okami. And of course, we all remember uh, he had the uh, the scheduled fight at uh, UFC on Fuel where he became one of the first guys to get caught for, for TRT abuse and uh, got his ass fired. So like kind of uh, an inauspicious history for him in what would otherwise be his biggest moments in the UFC. Yeah, I, I mean, it will be interesting to see where he goes from here. How about James Tahuna? You think he gets cut? You think he goes from main event to unemployed? Well, I mean, it depends. Like when the UFC is going back to New Zealand, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of the story here. Like we, they, they apparently one of the strategies is to try to get uh, the fight fans in these various international locations to come out to the live shows by stocking the card with local product, uh, which. I think we've argued about before and, and may or may not be a good idea, but like that's sort of the new, the new reality is that the UFC, if it's going to do these overseas shows, needs guys from uh, Australia and New Zealand to, to hook the live fans, or at least that's their theory. So you'd think all things being equal, James Tahuna probably not in the UFC anymore, but, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with kind of a new day here. Well, what I mean though, at the earliest, they're going to go back to New Zealand, what, like next year, you know, like around this time next year. I mean, you could easily just cut James Tahuna tell him to beat somebody up on the local circuit and you'll sign him again when it's time to go back to New Zealand. I mean, that that could just as easily become the model. Third question this week comes to us from David Dore. He writes, how bizarre is it that George St. Pierre is aligning himself with this drug lord from Canada? It just seems like one of those things you wouldn't expect from one of the more image-conscious fighters to ever grace the sport. I mean, is this going to affect his passive income? Discuss, por favor. Uh, so yeah, George St. Pierre wrote... Uh, first, a letter to this judge asking for uh, leniency on this, uh, like, kind of, I guess, uh, notorious drug dealer who is, is going to be uh, sentenced. He's a Canadian dude, but is going to be sentenced in America, I think, for, I for drug trafficking. I didn't even know Canadian drug lord was a phrase. Well, yeah, and I don't know anything about this guy, so I can't, like, speak to how evil he was. The thing that yeah. I read said he, he shipped a bunch of weed, uh, which makes it, which doesn't exactly make him sound like Pablo Escobar, but, like, who knows? Yeah, man. but you don't climb to the top of any uh, industry like that without uh, getting your hands dirty, yeah. right? Yeah, solid point. So, anyway, GSP writes 
writes a letter to this judge, uh, as it so often does, the MMA media gets wind of it, uh, writes a bunch of stories about it. And then this week, uh, the second open letter written to MMA fans this past week, by the way, the first by Scott Coker, uh, George St. Pierre kind of writes an open letter, uh, trying to explain himself and like did kind of a thoughtful and good job in the letter, I think, explaining like what his interest is and in, like in like, trying to advocate on this guy's behalf, but like in an umbrella, big picture kind of way, uh, bad look for GSP all the way around. Bad look, but I thought his, his second letter kind of clarifying and apologizing, uh, was, uh, like kind of a blueprint for exactly how you do that stuff. Like he kind of said, Hey, I didn't really realize the extent of this dude's crimes. Um, I, here's the context that I know him through and I believe I'm trying to be a good friend and that means helping out your friends even if they've fucked up and like, you know, that I, I would hope that I would be able to help him, you know, be better uh, at some point. And I was, you know, here's what I was trying to accomplish by writing that letter. But I also realized that, uh, you know, that it's not a good look and I'm sorry. I mean, I thought like really, really well done again. Like it just kind of the thing that makes you wonder like, man, how, how does GSP do everything like the classiest fucking way possible, even apologizing for writing a letter in support of a Canadian drug lord. Like he retired exactly kind of the right way, handled himself the right way in so many different situations. Uh, and then this, I mean, it's just like, this is how you do this stuff. Everybody should be paying attention to GSP or yeah. at least hire GSP's guy who writes the letter. Right. Yeah. I know. I agree with that. I think that's a, that's a valid point. And, and frankly, since that has always been the case with George St. Pierre, he's always been this like, really poised and classy guy and has always had, uh, you know, a really spotless public image. Uh, maybe that was one of the things that was even the most surprising about finding out that he was associating with this guy in the first place. And like, you know, you see the like grainy old photographs of them, uh, hanging out at, at nightclubs or whatever. Uh, and it kind of like, I think at first blush, it made you think maybe we don't know. We don't really know any of these guys or what they're into, which obviously is the truth. Like we don't know any of these right. guys, but I mean, I think that was one of the things that was so jarring about this thing with George St. Pierre was like, we think of him as this like squeaky clean guy. And then to see these pictures of him in this nightclub, hanging out with a guy we're led to believe is a no allegedly a notorious drug dealer. Like that, that, uh, that's an image hit, I think, right there. Well, one thing we know about GSP is he he likes a good nightclub. That's true. And so yes, you will does. you you might run into the occasional drug lord. Uh, also, we can't rule out the thing that hey, Canadians got to stick together. You know, it's like uh, they there's a Canadian musician is doing well, even if they don't necessarily personally like his music. They want to support him when he when he goes on and tries to make a big splash in the United States. It's the same thing with their drug lords, man. They just you know Canadians got to support Canadian drug lords. Last uh, piece of listener mail this week comes from us from Josiah Renaudin, or Josiah Renaudin. Good work. That's my French pronunciation. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, he writes, the day after UFC 175 will be treated to the rare hangover companion known as the Sunday evening UFC card. Now, like everything else, I don't give two shits about any of these tough fights. So let's just talk about the main event. What about this trilogy fight is more interesting to you guys? Frankie Edgar finally stepping back inside the octagon to throw his name back in the title chase or an allegedly motivated BJ Penn vying to prove that he still has that fire burning in his belly. Do you think that this fight will actually be competitive or does Edgar have Penn's number? I love the phrase allegedly motivated there uh, for BJ. Well, Penn. you always got to kind of say that about BJ Penn, yeah. right? Cause like there's levels of motivation. Like BJ, a really, really motivated BJ Penn is like, uh, you know, George St. Pierre taking it easy. Right. <laughs> well, and I think that that is the most 
interesting uh, aspect of that fight to me because Frankie Edgar doesn't really have that much to gain, right? Like he's already beaten BJ Penn twice. If you beat him now, like even if you really just smash him, people will say, oh, well, you know, you beat a guy you already beat and he's old uh, and coming out of retirement. So uh, I don't know if it really does that much for Frankie Edgar. Like he's the guy just kind of standing there going, really? You want to do it again? All right. Uh, But for BJ Penn, it is like, okay, let's find out. Is he really serious about wanting to come back? Uh, and is he really coming serious? back at featherweight? Uh, yeah. Nonetheless. And to, to, is he really going to do something there, uh, or is this just one of the bad ideas that fighters get in their heads when you know they think they want to retire and then they get into retirement and figure out they're bored and they want to do something? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the what is it? The old college football cliche, like you can't. It's really hard to beat a good team three times, or maybe a college basketball cliche that they say. I've never heard uh, that. With with uh, Frankie Edgar, you know, obviously he beat him in those first two fights. The the this kind of sad fact is, and maybe like I I have kind of a bad feeling about this fight, honestly, because I feel like well, if you fight BJ Penn a hundred times, eventually he's gonna beat you, right? <laughs> yes, so like at true. some point, like Frankie Edgar is gonna come out on the wrong end of a really close decision to BJ Penn, and then I don't even know where that leaves us. Yeah. Uh, the let's talk a little bit about the scheduling of this fight. Um ordinarily in a vacuum, I would be totally 100% into the idea. Number one, that two coaches from the ultimate fighter are actually going to fight at all. And number two, that two coaches, fairly high profile coaches from the ultimate fighter are actually going to fight on the live finale. Uh, I would think if you're the UFC and you're trying to use the ultimate fighter, even at this point to try to build new stars, et cetera, et cetera. One really good way to actually draw some eyeballs to an ultimate fighter live finale would be to have have the actual coaches fight on the finale instead of fighting at a pay-per-view a month later. Right. But these guys are going to have the kind of unfortunate luck to like come at the tail end of this upcoming weekend where we have UFC 175 the day before. And like a week earlier, we just did uh, once again, two, two fight cards in one day on separate continents. So to me, it's like, seems like kind of an unfortunate position to put BJ Penn and Frankie Edgar in uh, to kind of like have them, uh, just at the ass end of, of what has got to be a long haul for uh, fight fans over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can make that argument, but I still, I like the coaches fighting at the finale. I thing. do too. That I feels too. right. If that, it was a week later, you know, I'd be super into it. <laughs> if the whole thing was a week later, you mean? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, but I mean, and it also, you're right, it does, it not only makes sense to kind of like tie up the, the loose ends of the show all at once, uh, but it does a favor for the guys actually who are fighting for the Ultimate Fighter like title that season because now people will show up for uh, even the people who didn't watch the show, like us, uh, or, or like the people who just heard from Dana White how awful it was and decided not to watch it. Uh, those people will show up for Frankie Edgar and BJ Penn and at least catch a glimpse of these other guys. Uh, this reminds me, before we move on, uh, I have to uh, plug a story that I wrote that's going to be in the upcoming uh, USA Today pullout section about with Frankie Edgar talking about his first fight uh, in the Underground Combat League in New York. Uh, in a boxing gym in the Bronx. The video was out there on the internet. Is uh, it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was a no-rules fight, basically. Uh, he headbutts the dude at one point, uh, and he said that the rules, the only rules they agreed on, like they agreed basically Valley Tudo rules, but as he put it, I didn't want to be hitting the groin, so I wasn't going to hit him in the groin. So like basically that kind of stuff. Um, but it's just kind of like a fight in a gym, like in a boxing ring in a gym in the Bronx, uh, basically. And, and Frank Eater talking about 
his decision to, to take that fight and also uh, how he didn't realize because there was no medical uh, pre or post fight in, in the underground. Uh, he got his orbital broken right at the start of the fight with a couple knees in the clinch that you can tell are pretty hard. And he said he went to like a post fight dinner with his teammates afterwards and he went to the bathroom to blow like the blood out of his nose. And he said when he did it, when he blew his nose, he like ripped open a sinus passage and he could feel the air seeping in between his skin and his skull. What? And it was like crackling. Uh, and I was like, well, what'd you do then? He was like, well, I finished my meal and then I went to the emergency room. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, do you have you followed Jim Genia on Twitter? I talked all? to Jim Genia for this story, actually. Because yeah, if, you, if you talk about the underground, you've got to yes, talk to Jim Genia. Yes, I just started following him on Twitter a couple weeks ago. I don't know why I wasn't already because uh, he's been a he's been an a, amazing follow. He's always tweeting about uh, like weird underground New York fights on rooftops and stuff where people are like, we're going to have a boxing champion fight a Taekwondo champion on the roof of the projects. Yeah. And it's, and it's going to be amazing. Well, and that's one of the things he said about that, you know, because the underground still goes on. Uh, I went to one of them uh, when I lived in Queens and I trained at, at, I did jujitsu at a gym right around the corner and they, they hosted one. They kind of will, will float between a bunch of different gyms. Uh, and they hosted one and a couple of the guys, uh, who I trained with fought. So I went and watched that. And it's basically just folding chairs set up in the gym around this, uh, this boxing ring where they fought. But he was saying one of the, the appeals about it is it's still kind of like that Wild West vibe that MMA used to have where he's like, you'll still see a Kung Fu instructor who just believes that this shit can work. And like he's getting in there to kind of test it out himself. Like he's not like doing it for like because he thinks he's going to be in the UFC someday. He just wants to prove to himself and to others that this shit can work. And so you'll, and you'll see that. And you'll see, you know, a wrestling coach from Rutgers who just wants to get in there and, and see how tough he is. Like that kind of stuff still goes on in the underground where maybe it doesn't in some of these like more established like MMA promotions. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to fill you in on all of the news and notes from MMA that we miss from Monday through Friday. Uh, I guess I should also mes- mention that this week on comainevent.com, we're going to be posting the uh, three winners from the second annual White Elephant Essay Contest. Probably going to do that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I guess. Sure. Before UFC 175. Uh, so we'll, we'll tweet that out when it happens, but you know, you'll know, you definitely want to uh, go over there and check out the, the essays from the guys who beat your essays uh, and are now going to get just piles of wonderful MMA-related swag uh, from us. Basically, they're better than you. Unless you're one of them, and then good job. Yeah, awkward. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, if there was one thing this weekend that both Jeremy Stevens and Nate Marquardt proved, it's that pretty much the only thing you need to do to get over like Rover with the mixed martial arts media is come in with an awesome beard. That helps. People do like themselves a beard. 
At this point, it kind of makes me feel bad for all the schmucks that are running around there trying to have professional fighting careers and are cleanly shorn. Because, like, you grow out that beard, man. I bet your Twitter mentions go up like 10, 15 percent just feel, from that. I feel like beards are the new tattoos. Well, and that, frankly, is maybe a step in the right direction because you can shave the beard. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, also, though, it seems like the the beard kind of gives you this look like maybe you've been off like Rocky Four in some wintry Soviet cabin, like doing some kind of crazy training, like and you just kind of stepped out into the light of day after being in some dungeon killing yourself. It's like It makes you look like a, just a little more like grizzled and, and like you've been in isolation. So if you are sort of like a fringy UFC fighter, uh, you're just a guy out there trying to make his bread, trying to earn a living, you're hanging maybe on the edge of getting a pink slip with every fight, my advice to you, enormous beard. Grow a goddamn because beard. Because that immediately increases your your uh, your public perception by like three, four hundred percent. Well, and but the fringier you are, the more ridiculous your beard has to be. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Like maybe you could shape your beard like an animal or something like that if you're just like a fight pass prelim guy. Don't don't even make these suggestions in jest because they're going to take <laughs> you seriously. Anyway, Cub Swanson uh, overcame the power of Jeremy Stevens' beard this past weekend and uh, got a victory that we think and maybe we hope is going to make him uh, an upcoming number one contender for Jose Aldo's featherweight title. Um, I guess let's just talk about the fight first of all. Uh, as my wife referred to him while she was on her way out the door to go meet some friends the other night, uh, Cubby Sampson goes, goes out there in it. his, uh, his neon green tights with the tiger stripes up the sides. And, uh, you know, for most of the 25 minutes, looks like the better fighter against Jeremy Stevens, certainly the more complete fighter, the guy who did a better job controlling the distance had a much more diverse array of strikes in his arsenal. But at the same time, this was one of those kind of nerve wracking fights where it kind of doesn't matter how good one dude is because the other dude could always knock him out with one punch although you know as it turned out i think jeremy stevens might have hurt his hand in uh the second round i think he hurt his hand i think but he said it was his left hand right and he said that it wasn't broken that it just went numb right? oh, okay uh but at the same time like you know the tension was there you kept you kept kind of waiting for him to to hit Cub Swanson with that one big shot rocked him a couple times, but yeah. the finish never came. And uh, Cub Swanson gets the victory. What's what's your takeaway here from from just the action of this uh, UFC Fight Night 44 main event? Yeah, Cub Swanson took a few of those. Took a few good good solid shots, and especially there, like when he seems like he's up on the cards going into the fifth round, not as worried about taking those as you would think that you might want him to be if you're in his corner. You know, he seemed a little more willing to, to stand there and, and blaze away with him. But you're right, like, had the way more diverse attack, just do a lot more, and gave Jeremy Stevens a lot more to worry about than Stevens did for him. And I think that should make him uh, the, the top contender. I mean, the thing that's going to, the has the best potential to throw a, a wrench in that plan is, you know, if Chad Mendes goes out there and beats Jose Aldo, you got to think Aldo's probably going to get an immediate rematch, right? Well, yeah. Now that they're giving Henan Burrow an immediate rematch against TJ Dillashaw, I feel like they're sending the message, if you're a UFC champ and you lose your title, you're going to get an immediate rematch. I mean, some of that might just depend on, like, what division you're in and how, how compelling the other possible matchups are. But, yeah, I mean, you'd think if, if Henan Burrow gets one, Jose Aldo has done more as champ than, than Burrow, so he would seem like he ought to, ought to get one as well. Right, especially since if Mendez beats him, well, which I don't think is totally out of the question. Not at all. Uh, that, uh, that they would then be one and one against each other in a third fight would kind of make sense. And, I mean, that's not even to, uh, you know, speak to the idea that there could be a draw 
or one of those two guys could get injured and uh, and that would cause a delay that could screw up Cub Swanson's chances of being the number one contender, uh, which again is not even to mention the fact that like we talked about earlier, BJ Penn and Frankie Edgar are fighting at featherweight next weekend. And if the UFC really wants to put together a fight that's going to move more units than Cub Swanson versus Jose Aldo, for example, uh, Jose Aldo versus BJ Penn would probably be a little bit more of a financially uh, uh, favorable matchup. Get you've also you've also Get got uh, right uh, you've also got uh, Dennis Bermudez going to fight Clay Guida at an upcoming uh, event. Uh, Dennis Bermudez also has a six fight win streak, and uh, you know if he goes out there and beats Clay Guida, he would have a seven fight win streak. Um, the Cub Swanson one is probably more impressive, but I'm just saying it's not necessarily as these UFC these promised UFC title shots always are. It ain't a done deal till you're in the cage with the champ. Absolutely not. Can we talk for a second about uh, Cubby Sampson's awesome like little personal logo? Yes, I totally wanted to mention that and bring that up. Uh, this is sort of the first event where. It dawned on me that Cub Swanson has some awesome branding. Yeah. Like he's going out there and it's not a fist logo. You know, it's not like chains and and wings with skulls and stuff like that. It's like an awesome cartoon cub, which is like, seems like it's, it's maybe a little bit of a takeoff of the kind of cartoon Chicago Cubs logo that they sometimes use, but like more of an angry cub. Yeah. He's a little angry. Like he's like the disaffected teen cub. Kind of. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm into it. And frankly, I thought totally the shirts were pretty cool. Yeah. The, like, the Cub Swanson logo it's, shirts. That's always the thing to me. Whenever, like, somebody's trying to sell somebody's, like, walkout gear, and it's like, even if you're a huge supporter uh, of some fighter, do you really just want to wear, like, a, a shirt that just says, like, Cain Velasquez? Like, do you want to wear a shirt that just says some dude's name on it? Like, no, I don't really think you do. But if that dude has his own, like, kind of sweet-ass personal logo... Now that's something you can put on some gear and people want to buy. Like, I mean, I, I, it's the kind of thing that makes me wonder why don't more people have their own logo? I mean, I guess when your name is Cub, it yeah, kind of helps out a little bit. I was going to say, you don't, not a lot of fighters have the built in ready made branding of a dude named Cub. That's true. Uh, and as I put on Twitter on Saturday night, Cub Swanson totally missing out on an opportunity if after he retires from fighting, he doesn't start a friendly neighborhood tavern also called Cub Swanson's because I mean everyone wants to go drink at a place called Cub Swanson's right That's true it could be oh, like man. hey Ben it's Tuesday it's two for one drinks night down at Cub Swanson's let's go down there oh man I can't it's karaoke night over at Cub Swanson's man I got 86 from Cub Swanson's I can't, <laughs> I can't go back it's there. either a friendly neighborhood tavern or it's like a Dave and Buster's style family restaurant where you can go let the kids loose in the ball pit or the ski ball uh uh trench and uh then you and the wife can enjoy some cocktails just try to have a nice evening out at cub swanson's yeah just sitting out on the deck at cub swanson's uh having a nice glass of wine you got that really tough bear logo on the on the outside on the marquee i think it works man i really do oh man Uh, talking about how you fell in love with this waitress down at cub swanson's you know that's not going to end well (laughs) and jeremy stevens with his beard he could be the afternoon bartender down there at Cub Swanson's. Just, he's got a smile for everybody. You don't want to mess with him, though. He's a pretty, pretty tough guy. Uh, so Cub Swanson, kind of a featherweight success story at this point. Ben, let's close out the round with this. Uh, this obviously is his sixth win in a row in the UFC. Uh, previous to that, he had kind of had a rough patch there where I think, uh, he went two and three, I believe, from like 2009 to 2011. I don't have it in front of me, but I wrote it in enough stories last week that I kind of remember it a little bit. Uh, he has kind of been a guy who had 
let down in some big spots and had been the victim, of course, of that crazy double flying knee KO from Jose Aldo. Uh, if he does become the number one contender and gets another crack at Aldo, uh, I would think that would be a pretty important opportunity for him, not only to win the title, but to uh, sort of distance himself from being the guy who is always going to be remembered for, for that uh, for getting knocked out in eight seconds by a thing that seemed to suspend the laws of physics. Yeah, and that seems like it's got to be pretty important to him just personally. Because you're right, he did have that stretch where he was just kind of winning one and losing one. And that thing against Aldo, though, I mean, I know a lot of guys where it still bugs them just that the extent to which they seem to live on in highlights. And that's one of those where, you know, if you don't do something else to kind of replace that, that could end up being the thing that, you get shown doing uh, after you retire, you know, still people are showing up to the events and seeing you get jumping knee in the face and nobody wants that. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's got to be important to him. And I could see why he'd probably prefer that Jose Aldo uh, goes out there and beats Chad Mendez so that, you know, he does get that opportunity and also takes away some of the, the, the possible, uh, sidetrack things that we talked about before about what could happen if Mendez wins. Uh, at the same time though, I mean, even if you feel like you can go out there and, hey, I'm better than this, you know, first round jumping knee knockout. Still a tough fight, though, man. Even if you make it past eight seconds, you still got to worry about how you're going to beat a guy like Josie Allen. And then the thing was, watching him against Jeremy Stevens. You know, it didn't leave me feeling like, hey, there's no chance. He's got no chance against Jose Aldo. I feel like it would be kind of an interesting and also maybe kind of a fun fight to watch. Are both dudes that, like, Aldo is going to come out there with his technical brilliance and throw those hooks and low kicks, but Cub Swanson's going to be out there whipping off them weird cartwheel kicks that he does. So I'll watch that. I will totally watch that. I will totally watch that, too. I still feel like his best chance, though, against Jose Aldo would be to wear him down and try to exploit the, the what we've sometimes seen as either – uh, poor cardio in the later rounds or just kind of a lax attitude from Jose Aldo in some of the later rounds uh, and you know, try and put him away like in the fifth or fourth or something. Yeah, that's probably the best strategy there. I think the worst part about getting knocked out by that double flying knee uh, KO, even worse than like if you're Ben Henderson, you get knocked out by the Showtime kick. He didn't get knocked out. By what, yeah, knocked down, I guess. Uh, the double flying knee KO is like you almost have to watch it like eight times before you <laughs> yes. realize how awesome it is. Like you have to watch it from one angle and then watch it in slow motion from another angle before you're like, oh, holy shit, he did knee him twice while he yeah. was up in the air. So I'm imagine that's like uh, a terrible thing for Cubs once and let's do uh are you fucking kidding me and then we'll move on to round number two Ben this week my are you fucking kidding me is a fairly straightforward one uh it goes out to all of the people that might be inclined to believe Vitor Belfort this week when he uh told Combate a Brazilian media outlet fighting outlet about his recent failed drug test uh, that it resulted because his doctor just gave him a week's worth of testosterone replacement therapy treatments in one day uh, to his own bad luck the day before he went to Las Vegas and got popped by a surprise drug test. Here's the quote. I was doing a hormonal treatment and they asked for me to do a drug test as if I were any other person. I took the shot the day before in Las Vegas. I usually took the dosage throughout the week, but this day I took the whole weekly dosage. Motherfucker, oh. are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Oh, wouldn't you know it? The one time when you just figure out, get it all in at once, that's when they drug test you. Oh. Professional MMA fighters have never legitimately failed a drug test, say MMA fighters who have failed drug tests. Never, not once. Well, Chad, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to Red, White, and Fight Week. Oh, I'm pumped for it, man. I mean, you know, 
it's not only that we just had to hear it over and over again where the UFC trying to attach its fight week festivities for UFC 175 to the 4th of July weekend, uh, but it just doesn't make any sense as a phrase. It's just And as several people pointed out, there are so many better options if you want to make some kind of like pun with the phrase. I'll just read Jordan Breen's tweet about this. About this. Why is the UFC's butt rock party fest not called Red Fight and Blue? Have none of these people ever made a pun before? Use the rhyming one. Come on, there are so many other ways you can do that. I mean, like, just the terrible suggestions people were making as jokes when I was complaining about this on Twitter were all better than Red, White, and Fight Week. And yet, that's the one we end up, like, there's nobody, like, are they just throwing this stuff out there and there's nobody double-checking it to see if we could maybe come up with something better? They come up with all these ideas at 4.45 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. It's possible, kidding me. it's possible they didn't put their top people on it. Fucking kidding me. Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be back momentarily with round number two. Well, Chad, let's talk about some fights that actually matter for a title. Chris, the All-American Weidman, going to bring his middleweight strap into Las Vegas and going to fight somebody not named Anderson Silva for a change. Uh, he is a slight favorite, I believe, over Leota Machida, but this one seems tough to call, does it not? Yeah, I think one of the things that is so interesting and exciting to me about this one that is that it's one of those fights where I really have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, in a lot of ways... And you just talked about this in the intro because this one matters and is for a title and seems like an interesting matchup between two guys uh, that we care about. This one's been kind of the light at the end of the tunnel, I think, for a lot of people just trying to keep their head above water during this recent uh, sprint through all these different fighting events. Uh, I think that it's an important fight for Chris Weidman and obviously an opportunity for Lyoto Machida to try to jumpstart Machida era 2.0. Uh, <laughs> but again, is, is one where I don't think we know what's going to happen just because uh, there was so much weirdness in the two fights between Chris Weidman and Anderson Silva and Lyoto Machida obviously uh, was once hailed as the savior of the light heavyweight division but uh you know his era kind of fizzled he only had one successful title defense and then begun a very tumultuous up and down period that where i think he went like uh uh three and four or something like that and then ended up cutting down to middleweight uh uh and and but since going down there has looked outstanding and so really it's has, it's yeah. a it's a situation where almost anything could happen i think chris weidman is something like a two to one favorite and uh if i if i had to pick even though we don't do that on this show i would probably say i think chris weidman's gonna win but it also wouldn't surprise me to see machida either dance circles around him for five rounds or go out there and, and bring his 205 pound power to bear on a 185 pound man and win via some kind of stoppage you know that that is an interesting aspect of it. I also, though, have to wonder, it seems like Machida's style is one of those, and I know that we've talked about it before and I've written about it, where uh, there's always a good chance that the judges can fail to appreciate the subtleties of his style. Or, you know, they might overestimate the subtleties of his style. Like, you just never know. If he has a fight and it goes to a decision, you never are quite sure exactly how the judges are going to see it unless he completely dominated it. So I think that that is also an interesting element of this. I mean, 
the one of the things that he seems to do really well is frustrate guys and get them to, to come after him. And I, and I wonder, though, if this is one where maybe he's got to be feeling the pressure, like I've got to be the one to go out there. You know, he's the challenger. Uh, he, he's had some close decisions go against him pretty recently. I wonder if he feels like he has to be the one to, to really go on the attack. Uh, and we've seen him sometimes, like, against uh, Sweet and Sassy, the young vagabond, uh, Gigard Musasi. When he did go on the attack, man, he was effective. Yeah, and, you know, it's always hard to tell uh, with the enigmatic Lyoto Machida exactly what he's thinking or what he's going to do in a fight. Um, I think that uh, if, if, you know, I think in a situation where a guy tries to come out and be real aggressive against Chris Weidman, I feel like that's almost playing right into Chris Weidman's skill set because then, you know, if you're coming forward like that, you leave yourself open for the takedown. Chris Weidman obviously slick as hell with the takedowns and the thing that separates him uh, as a wrestler from a lot of other uh, you know, the, the style of, of wrestler that sometimes gets maligned in mixed martial arts as a lay and pray guy or a guy that just goes out there and grinds out decisions like, say, a Chael Sonnen, who previous to Weidman was the guy who gave Anderson Silva the, the toughest run for his money. The difference between a dude like Sonnen and a dude like Weidman is if Weidman takes you down, he stands a pretty good chance of stopping you because he has a pretty potent submission game and, and his ground and pound is competent also. So I wonder, I would think for Lyoto Machida, uh, even if he is feeling some sense of urgency that this might be his last chance to kind of become the guy he was always meant to be maybe trying to use that elusiveness and frustrate Weidman would be more effective than than trying to get in his face and where you might open yourself up for the takedown yeah and and he has had a lot of success when he could force guys to kind of just run into his fists uh, as he did to Ryan Bader you know didn't it seem for a while like every wrestler in the UFC wanted to fight Lyoto Machida and you'd constantly hear them saying stuff about how they felt like they matched up really well against him like Randy Couture said it Dan Henderson said it it was this thing where everybody seemed to feel like especially like a certain kind of American wrestler would feel like they were just tailor-made to beat Lyoto Machida but it didn't always seem to go as well as they they thought right yeah, well, uh, he, he did fight Randy Couture. He obviously fought John Jones. He fought Ryan Bader. He fought Dan Henderson. He fought Phil Davis and he fought Mark Munoz all right in a row. So that's all of them pretty much. That's pretty much all the wrestlers we got, uh, except for, except for Chris Wyman. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think like, uh, you know, we've talked about on this show, I think during the, the latter days of Leota Machida's light heavyweight career about how his style, uh, kind of seemed, uh, not, perfectly designed to go out and win a decision, especially in a three round fight. And I think that that kind of elusive, like dink and dunk style of striking that he has, uh, that he sometimes shows, I guess, uh, probably leads the bullheaded American wrestler guy to believe, oh shit, I could take this guy right yeah, I'll down. Just, I'll just steamroll. I'll just put my hands on him. Like yeah. Joe Warren tells me I'll to get in his face. The thing about Ruff, roughneck him a little bit, <laughs> go out there and roughneck him. That's always a winning strategy. Uh, the thing, though, that I think separates Chris Weidman from those dudes is that, f you know, even though he's a guy that seems kind of hard to get your arms around in terms of uh, uh, what he's really, really good at in the cage and also a guy who has a personality that's not necessarily going to light your interview segment on fire. Uh, he's a dude who has like this kind of weird uh, definitely new next generation athleticism in terms of like mixed martial arts fighters. And uh, obviously he's a dude that's been able to beat every single person that he's fought so far. Uh, and even though he's a little bit inexperienced still at 11 and 0, um, he's a dude that you would probably put closer to the uh, John Jones, Phil Davis level of wrestler than maybe the Ryan Bader, Mark Munoz level of MMA wrestler. Yeah, especially for, for MMA wrestling. Can we talk though about the, the best part about having Chris Weidman show up to fight? And that is, of course, 
Ray Longo walking out there in one of those fighter tees that were absolutely not made for the body type of Ray Longo. I love me some Ray Longo. Uh, that dude seems like one of the, the, like, more interesting coaches and more interesting people out there. I also love, though, that, like, it just, it seems like they took somebody's, uh, uncle and forced him into, like, a tap-out shirt, and he's totally uncomfortable the entire time. But he's going to do it because he's supportive. Support the kids, yeah. right? Yeah, and Ray Longo went on the MMA hour, the, the you know, I think last week. Oh, the and Fortnite? The Fortnite, yeah, and he busted out a pretty sweet quote, a pretty sweet, frankly, Ray Longo-style quote about what Chris Weidman's going to do to Leota Machida, and that was this. I think I'm going to read it into my Ray Longo voice. Even no, though please, I don't by, know. By if, I don't even know if this is what he sounds all like. Fucking me. I think Weidman's going to go out there and he's going to do what he always does. He's going to get in that ring. He's going to go forward. He's going to impose his will on Machida. And he's going to make Machida fight his game. And he's probably just going to end up crushing the guy. Can I tell you something honestly? What? That's the best voice I've ever heard you do. Really? <laughs> yeah. Not only in terms of like accuracy, but like consistency all the way through. I feel like uh, you you might have peaked voice-wise right here with this one. Well, I feel like I should probably just uh, throw my power rate on the ground and walk out then. That's right. So this is a, this, maybe this is the top of the hill for it's me. It's not going to get any better. Does it seem weird to you, and I, I guess I want to ask you if you even think this is true, but do you think it's weird that Chris Weidman has not been uh, more widely accepted as the champion? Uh, you know, like I said, there was the weirdness in those two fights with Anderson Silva, but he did win both of them, and he did beat the greatest fighter of all time. Two times in a row. It seems like there's a lot of people out there right now. They're just kind of like still think that his title reign is a fluke, which seems incredibly unfair to me. I don't know if I'd say that uh, it's a fluke, but I do understand why there would be like kind of a reservation on the part of a lot of MMA fans. Because like you said, I mean, he did beat Anderson Silva the first time. People could say, oh, Anderson Silva was fucking around the second time. You know, he, he broke his damn shin in half. Uh, but as we pointed out, it's not like Anderson Silva was winning that fight before he broke his leg. You know, so I think that while you have to give Chris Weidman his credit, he's the champ, he's earned that, uh, and uh, he, he deserves that, I can understand why some people are saying, okay, let's see him fight somebody else, and, you know, before we completely make up our minds that we're, we're getting on the, the Chris Weidman bandwagon, that seems reasonable to me. But if he does go out there and, uh, like Ray Longo says, just crush him, uh, then, you know, then you got to shut up and accept it, that, that Weidman is the man. Obviously, I think you got Vitor Belfort still kind of hiding in the shadows, waiting in the wings here. It seems unbelievable to me that the UFC would still try to prop Vitor Belfort up as a legitimate number one contender to the middleweight title, considering... Have you met uh, the UFC? Have you met these people? All of the weirdness, uh, UFC 175 drug test related, and then now this Chael's recent, most recent second Chael Sonnen debacle. Seems like a really bad idea to me to send Vitor Bel Belfort out there and give him a, the chance to win your middleweight title, uh, especially with now him saying he wants it to happen in Brazil. Uh, if you're Chris Weidman and you win this fight, I think you got to put your foot down and say, we're doing this in Las Vegas. Uh, but if, uh, if Leoto Machida wins, do you think we, we see a big, uh, stadium, Brazil, soccer, football environment fight down there in Manaus for the 185 pound strap? Well, they got some stadiums down there now. Yes, that, they that, do. That's one yeah. thing we, we know about Brazil now after the World Cup. But, you know, I don't know. I, it's, it's tough to say exactly what the UFC would do if Machida were to come away with a strap here. But I, I, I agree with you that you got to think twice if you're the UFC. Because if you put Belfort into one of those fights, that's the thing about him is he's pretty good. Yeah, he could so win. He could definitely win. And then you could have a whole different kind of problem. Maybe the UFC is hoping that, like, Vitor Belfort seems to be the dude who's just like, 
whatever the shiny object he sees, like he's going to go after that. Like, you know, yeah, if, if Wyman wins and he's, sh- I'm certainly going to call him out and try to get a fight in his own backyard. Uh, but you know, give it a little time. Let, let John Jones win another fight. Maybe Vitor end up calling him out again. I mean, you never know. Vitor just wants to fight everybody who just won a fight. So, uh, maybe they're not too worried about that purchase yet. Well, it's worked for him in the past. So I understand the, uh, the impulse. Anyway, uh, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, I'm reminded that one of the coolest things about Alexis Davis is that when you type Alexis Davis into Wikipedia, the first page that comes up is Alexis Davis is a fictional character on the ABC soap opera General Hospital. And then you got to click the Alexis Davis fighter tab. Oh, yeah, there we go. Alexis Davis. Um, I guess my opening question for you is when she beats Ronda Rousey at UFC 175 on Saturday, what are we going to do with the money? <laughs> you mean the money we make from betting on the the ten to one underdog? Yeah, I've already called uh, my guy in the pawn shop industry. We're gonna put all of this co-main event podcast recording equipment on Hawk. Take that money, call our local bookie, put it all down on Alexis Davis, the fighter, not the fictional character from ABC's General Hospital. And when she wins, we're on Easy Street. What do you think? I feel like there's no way this plan could go badly. Absolutely no way. You know what? And, uh, hey, if I have to go ahead and, and put my house up just so we can maximize our, our profits, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't do that. You know, uh, it, it's not like, like, come on, how, how, how bad could things go for us here, right? Sure, Ronda Rousey is a 20 to 1 favorite, uh, which seems absolutely fucking absurd. Uh, but then, you know what? I was thinking about it as I was looking at those odds in all seriousness. And at first, your first reaction is, come on, that's, that's crazy. But then, I try to picture how Alexis Davis might beat Ronda Rousey, and aside from, like, you know, heart attack, I can't come <laughs> up with a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this after UFC 170 back in February that, uh, you know, that the, the Alexis Davis-Jessica I fight was one where within, like, the first, within the first round, I think, as we were watching it, uh, it was just sort of like, well, neither of these people are going to beat Ronda Rousey, right? Like right. That, and not that we, you would expect to see that since Ronda Rousey appears to still be a generation ahead of every other 135-pound woman currently under contract to the UFC. Uh, but I don't think we have incredibly high hopes for Alexis Davis, especially since uh, the ground is obviously Ronda Rousey's domain. And if you go down there with her, you you go home with one if you go home with one arm you're lucky i think <laughs> uh and you know 135 pound women's bantamweight division is not a, a place where at least to date we have seen a lot of like one punch knockouts so it, it you're right it's hard to know uh how alexis davis would go out there and pull out this victory now maybe the one thing that we can say in her favor is that 
This doesn't nice. seem... She's really nice. She's super nice. Uh, she's Canadian, right? Yeah. So I assume she's super nice. Yeah, she kind of has to be. No choice there. She's just... She's friends with everyone, even drug kingpins, I assume. Uh, but, you know, if we can say one thing in Alexis Davis's favor, it's that, you know, there's an outside shot that maybe Ronda Rousey didn't put her full heart and soul into this one, even though Ronda Rousey doesn't seem like that kind of person. Yeah, see... She did train for this fight while she was out making a couple of movies and uh, is after this fight going to kind of try to take the rest of the year off until the uh, the probably New Year's Eve show. So she might be looking at this one as like the one that she just needs to get through to get to get to that vacation, uh, which even as I say it now, just doesn't even convince me. Yeah, I think we've said this before, right? Like, yeah, we pretty much said it, I think, before the Sarah McMahon fight. Also. Yeah. And, you know, that does seem, though, like the best chance for Ronda Rousey to lose is that she's got too much going on and she's not able to balance it all. But it seems like that's been going on long enough now that she's kind of proven that she can balance it all. And like you said, I also feel like she's far enough ahead. Uh, and I hope she doesn't listen to this and get, get screwed up in the head about it. But I feel like she's far enough ahead of all the other fighters in the division that she even could kind of fuck around a little bit and still go out there and beat most of them. Uh, not Again, Ronda, don't do that. Don't actually try and do that. But I, I mean... It seems like if that were going to happen, we'd have seen some sign of it by now. And you're right. It doesn't seem like she's shown any of those tendencies, uh, even just personality wise. She seems like she can be, you know, exactly the promotional uh, juggernaut that the UFC expects her to be and do a ton of media and still be absolutely ready to go out there and destroy somebody. I mean, I would think maybe if there's a, a danger in this specific fight with that, it would be that. She would also come to believe that uh, Alexis Davis really has nothing for her. And what if she tries to to carry the fight a little longer or, or make a little more out of it? Uh, you know, that could always go bad. But again, there's just these are like such wild hypotheticals that we have no real reason to think are going to happen, which tells you uh, what a lopsided matchup this is. Yeah, I feel like we're just trying to establish a narrative here. We're yeah. just grasping at straws, trying to do think of anything we can to... Uh to try to make this seem more competitive than than the odds makers believe it to be. But like, yeah, you're right. I think that Ronda Rousey seems like the kind of person who's probably on the uh, Expendables 54 set working all day and then putting in a full day of throwing around huge men on the mats just to make sure that she doesn't lose her edge. It also just seems, though, like this feels just like such a, a placekeeper fight. Like we're just going to we got to get through this one because all the other people who we actually do want to see Ronda Rousey fight are for one reason or another not quite available yet, uh, not quite able to be thrown into that fight by the right. UFC. But it does seem like we're just trying to get through this one, doesn't it? It does. And that is probably as workable a segue as any so that since Ronda Rousey is not allowed to overlook Alexis Davis, but we are Absolutely. here on the co-main event podcast state run TV this past week clued us into at least its side of the story that uh, negotiations have stalled a little bit with Gina Carano. That doesn't mean that she's she's not going to come in and fight Ronda Rousey at some point, but either the things aren't going well with her or the UFC wants to uh, send her a little a little message via the television show. Or and who knows, maybe she never fucking intended to sign a UFC contract and was just trying to get her name in the press because she had a goddamn movie out. I don't think that would surprise anyone. The other side of the coin, obviously, is that uh, the television program tells us that things are progressing nicely with Holly Holm. Uh, Ronda Rousey had some pretty ugly things to say about uh, Cyborg Justino during her media lunch past week. Uh, pulled the miscarriage 
garbage card out. Don't do that. Uh, don't so, do it. Uh, we still don't think that that fight is right around the corner, but I mean, if we had to guess and look ahead to the end of the year, we already have a feeling that uh, this year is going to be down a little bit for the UFC in, turn of, in terms of pay-per-view sales. Probably this UFC 175 this weekend stands the best chance of being its biggest seller of at least the first half of the year. But if you look into your crystal ball, who does the UFC pull out of its back pocket to try to boost the uh, the buy rate uh, for that end-of-the-year show with, with Ronda Rousey? I think Holly Holm seems like the most realistic option there, and that's a fight that I'd like to see. Uh, I think the question for the UFC is, do you try to get a deal done with Holly Holm and give her one fight in the UFC so that people get a chance to see who she is and kind of build her up there, or do you just try and take her and throw her right into to a fight against Ronda Rousey because, man, if she goes out there and loses to Jessica I or something like that, then what are you going to do? Yeah, and we know that that has worked out poorly in the past for MMA promoters that, that, that try to do that kind of stuff. Um, I agree with you though. I feel like Holly Holm is a pretty interesting matchup, uh, based more on, uh, well, not, not only her stand-up prowess because she's a super good striker, but like based on her athleticism, when you, when you see her fight, and granted, she's fighting in these smaller promotions, uh, over on Access TV on Friday nights or whatever, uh, so it's hard to gauge the, the kind of competition that she's getting. But when you see her fight, she seems like the kind of level of athlete that would, would at least be able to give Ronda Rousey, uh, you know, a, a, a competitive fight. Right. Well, and I think that it's also one of those things like we used to say about Ronda Rousey, like, hey, if you're going to fight her, the time to fight her is now before she before her stand up gets better. Uh, and I think it might be a similar thing for Holly Holm, where if you're Ronda Rousey, you want to fight Holly Holm sooner before she has a chance to get her takedown defense and anti-judo uh, where it needs to be to keep the fight standing. Because I think that you know she has a better chance of closing that gap to at least stay off the mat uh, sooner than Ronda Rousey has a chance of closing the gap that she will inevitably face in a, in a stand-up fight against a striker the likes of Holly Holm. Like that's going to happen quicker for Holly Holm probably than it will for Ronda, especially you know since, like you said. Ronda's got to finish this up and get back on the set of Entourage 6 or whatever it is that she's doing next. So, uh, you know, that I, I think is the best option for the UFC, although you can see like some roadblocks in that, that direction. Do you still feel like eventually we're going to get around to that cyborg fight, though? I kind of hope so. I kind of hope that a lot of this is smoke and mirrors and that, uh, I mean, I guess you never say never in the fight game for good reason, because if there's money to be made on a fight it it seems like eventually the almighty dollar wins out and they they end up doing it and i Especially really if they run out of other options yeah and i mean that's that's one of the good points here i, I and i do feel like uh, chris cyborg is one of the few women in the world that could give ronda rousey a competitive fight obviously tons of unknowns about that fight uh we don't even know the real story about chris santos or chris justino thinking whether or not she could make 135 etc the, the biggest limiting factor for that fight might be we still don't know how long Ronda Rousey is even going to be around this sport. It seems like she's trying to be pretty honest about it. Honestly, I saw the, the story John Morgan did today uh, where right. he asked yeah, her about it and she was kind of like just what seemed to me to be pretty honest. She just said, you know, I don't know. I don't know how long I'm going to fight. It kind of depends on how these fights go, really. If, they, if they're long and grueling, I might not have as many in me. If I, if I go out there and finish them quick, maybe I do a few more than than otherwise. So uh, I would think that, that aside from all the acrimony and the, the fact that the UFC seems hesitant to bring Chris Cyborg in, you're also kind of racing against the clock here to see how long Ronda Rousey is going to stick around. Yeah, and but I do think it's going to get to a point where if she's not gone from the sport for good to, to go off and, and – 
uh, do movies and TV and stuff like that, then you're going to get to a point where that is the money fight. And even if she does feel like she's going to get pulled uh, toward Hollywood, it's hard to resist that big one-time payday, you know? Because I think that that is the kind of fight, especially if you care about building the women's division, that is the kind of fight that... Uh, even the people who normally don't give a shit that much about women's MMA are going to drop everything to come see that fight. Right, which is also the story of the Gina Carano fight, and it's probably why Ronda Rousey keeps making a point of saying that's a fight that she wants to f- have, because not only would that one be a moneymaker, but and would be one easy. where she probably honestly could roll in on 24 hours' notice. <laughs> Smelling with, like booze and dirty strippers. That's right, and put, and put the stamp on Gina Carano. Uh, but uh, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then, then we'll get out of here for this week. What's your Just Saying Stuff for this week? Well, Chad, uh, as I'm sure you noticed when uh, you were watching the Fight Pass event from New Zealand at 12.30 a.m. in the One True Time Zone, uh, the show opened with a fight between uh, Gian Vellante and uh, Sean, the real O.C. O'Connell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, know. I remember that one. His nickname, at least according to Sheridog, is the real O.C., mm-hmm. which I have to assume is a reference to the television show The O.C., uh, popular in the, the mid 2000s is kind of like a Beverly Hills 90210 for a new generation. And this man's nickname, I suppose, references that show and, and to imply that it was fake and he is real. I'm just saying that's fucking incredible. <laughs> it's incredible that that happened and that, that he's gotten to this point and nobody has talked him out of that. That's incredible. You, your friends are doing a disservice, Sean O'Connell. That is pretty incredible. Ben, this week, I'm just saying, I know you saw the Andrew uh, Craig versus Cesar Fajara fight on UFC Fight Night 44. You bet I did. A fight when uh, where Andrew Craig got busted wide open. And frankly, let's just say, for whatever reason, seeing a man bleed his own blood out of his cornrows is just grosser than seeing a man bleed out of almost any other style of haircut. It's like you can't tell where it's coming from, but you, you feel like you should be able to tell. Yeah. So it's anyway, unsettling. by the end of the fight, Andrew Craig is wearing the proverbial crimson mask. He is uh, back mounted, but on top of his opponent up against the fence. And uh, he's laying there punching him over his shoulder in a, in a, one of some of the strangest ground and pound you'll ever see. Uh, and I think all of us who are MMA fans, especially when Andrew Craig got up and kind of crafted a, a, a ultimately unsuccessful comeback there in the last minute, we're probably all like, oh, dude, awesome. This suddenly got really awesome. And as I was watching it, it struck me, you know what? This is really awesome. But also, I'm just saying, this is the exact kind of thing that really makes you realize that this audience is limited. I mean, we're never going to be bigger than soccer, frankly, when one white dude with cornrows bleeding all over his own face is laying on top of another dude on his back, punching him over his own shoulder. I'm just saying. You're just saying you'd rather see a Dutchman uh, fall down like he's been shot by a sniper from somewhere up in the stands. That actually was pretty incredible because that <laughs> dude is appealing to the referee and uh, playing up. He's taking, he's diving, flopping, and appealing to the referee all while still in midair, <laughs> which that's professionalism, man. You can say what you want to, but that dude knows what he's doing. That's true. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at UFC 175. Until then, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. You know, I hear uh, Half Price apps this afternoon down at Cub Swanson's. Over at Cub Swanson's? Yeah, yeah. I love their jalapeno poppers. Yeah, no, the potato skins are tough. Not-
<laughs> yeah, with the bacon, they sprinkle the bacon all on top, on top of it. Yeah. I heard Swanson does that himself. <laughs> he stands at the window sprinkling the bacon.